Hello and welcome into another episode of the Lagumba Pastor's Blog. I'm Lasumba Jonathan. Our lesson today is entitled John chapter 19, Jesus's Crime. Our text to begin is John 19 from verse 16 to verse 22. It says this, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. After failing to convince the Jews to ask for the release of Jesus, Pilate orders Jesus to be taken and crucified. The cross being carried refers to the cross beam of the two sections that made up the cross. There was the horizontal beam and the vertical beam. The victims were forced to carry this piece themselves. It was a part of the humiliation of crucifixion, making a victim bring along the mechanism of their own death. We know, most likely due to the scourging he already went through, that Jesus was unable to carry his cross all the way, and the Romans forced Simon of Cyrene to carry it. In Luke 23, verse 26, it says, And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. When the victims arrived at the place of execution, they were more often tied, but sometimes nailed to the cross. And the horizontal beam was fixed to the vertical beam and then hoisted into its place in the ground. Crucifixion was a slow death designed to make the victim suffer a slow, suffocating demise. It often lasted a few days. The purpose of this was twofold. One, it was an aggravated form of execution, meant to inflict great suffering on the person being put to death. Secondly, it was meant to serve as a deterrent from anyone else committing the same crime that the victim had. History gives many examples that show the greatest deterrents to crime are strong punishments for criminal acts. In Martin Meredith's book, The State of Africa, Meredith includes a section on Nigeria's history that illustrates this fact. In a time of political instability, the commander-in-chief of the Nigerian army seized power to pay his soldiers months of wages they were owed by the government. But this particular commander had no desire to hold power himself, so after getting the money for his soldiers from the National Bank, he simply moved away from the capital. This left the country without any government and no local police forces. Criminal gangs quickly took over the major cities, and robbed and looted all the shopkeepers' stores. The shopkeepers in one city armed themselves and banded together and entered, entered into war with local criminals. They adopted such practices as placing thieves in barrels of fuel in the street and lighting them on fire for everyone to see. 
In one month, the crime rate went from 100% to less than 1%. My point is not to advocate for this type of justice, but to explain the Romans had reason for their practice of crucifixion. And this leads us to the argument between the Jews and Pilate. The victims of crucifixion had a sign hung either around their necks or fixed on the top of the cross to show what they were convicted of. The signs labeled them as things like thief, murderer, rebel, etc. Jesus had to be convicted for something to justify his execution. And yet Pilate had repeatedly told the Jews he found no guilt in him. The Jews had then stated that any man who makes himself a king is no friend of Caesar. This was the statement that convinced Pilate to give in to their demands. So, Pilate convicted Jesus of being king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders wanted him to change this because they continued their accusation that Jesus was a fraud, who was not truly the Jews' king, but rather that he claimed to be. In this, we have the interesting side of both Jew and Gentile rejection of Jesus. On the Jewish side, they rejected Jesus as not being the king they wanted. The Gentile side was dishonor of their self-appointed king. Interestingly, when the Romans began persecuting Christians, it was majorly due to the doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus' deity and authority. The Romans didn't mind people worshiping other gods, but they had a problem with the claim that there was only one god and that the emperor was not supreme nor divine. So, the crime that Jesus was convicted for and labeled publicly was being the king of the Jews. He was crucified then for being exactly who he is. That explains his execution from man's point of view. But God uses these details to make an analogy that reveals a very fantastic truth for why Jesus was crucified from God's point of view. In Colossians chapter 2, from verse 13 to verse 15, we read this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Every human being outside of Christ is dead because of their transgressions. God shows us that Jesus died so we could be made alive in him and with him. The only way to do this was to eliminate our record of sin. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. There's no getting out of that. That's the consequence, and the penalty must be paid. In the same way that Pilate nailed a sign on Jesus' cross with the, cr the crime he was convicted of, God chose to convict his son for all the crimes committed by every human being who has ever lived. My lust and your lust, my covetousness and yours, my theft and yours, my hatred and yours, my idolatry and yours, my jealousy and yours, my greed and yours. God put it all on the cross, and Jesus died for it. By doing this, the Bible explains that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. These are not referring to governors like Pilate, but to Satan 
and his fellow accusers. Remember, where did Satan's power over us come from? In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We see the, the power that Satan had through death was because physical death led to eternal death of a sinner. Physical death for a convicted sinner means eternal death in the lake of fire. But with Jesus and these two criminals, we see that execution is the final punishment that can be given for a crime, right? The Romans convicted them and executed them. Was there any more punishment they could give than that? Could they resurrect them and punish them again? No, they died once and it was finished. This is what the scripture says of Jesus' death for our sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, we read, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. Notice that, once for all, once for all, one time, for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. If any person is in Christ, his death has been canceled by Christ. Jesus was already executed for it. There's no more punishment possible. It's done, friends. It's finished. In this part of the crucifixion account, God's prediction from Isaiah is fulfilled. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, we read, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was identified as a transgressor and executed with the transgressors. Do you see the picture? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He identified himself with us to take away our sins. This is how God can say this of the finality of Christ's offering in Hebrews 10, verses 16 to 18. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The weapon Satan formed against us was deceiving the human race to sin. Then he goes and reports to God an accusation that we have fallen short of God's glory. The false prophet Balaam did this same thing. He advised Balak, king of Moab, to send women to seduce the Israelite men to commit sexual immorality and idolatry with them so that God would be angry with Israel. We see then that Balaam used his knowledge of God's law not to lead people to God, but to cause them to be condemned by God. Jesus disarmed Satan by taking the punishment for our crime of sin. 
There's therefore no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. We'll, cl- we'll conclude lastly with this, these two beautiful verses from Romans chapter 8. Verses 33 and 34 say this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God bless you all.